Mark. Before I begin, I want to make a uh, personal comment. I have preached on this passage before. And I put my sermon notes in a file. And uh, I couldn't find the file. And nothing was digital then. In fact, I don't think they had invented zeros and ones yet. Well, I recently found that file, and these words were at the top of my preaching notes. Announce the birth of Megan Farquhar, 8 pounds, 1 ounce, 21 inches. Megan, where are you? (laughs) Megan is sitting right there. She is a nurse at Erlanger. And uh, Lewis and BJ... Uh, may God grant you the joy of long-term relationships with these amazing families here. You're headed down that path already because I know of your love for the people sitting here and their love for you. God is good. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that as we open your word, your spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Father, that uh, uh, truth would uh, be anchored in our souls because your word is truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Nigeria, Boko Haram, which is Hausa language for Western teaching is forbidden. That's what it means. Boko Haram has repeatedly kidnapped young Christian girls, bombed churches while people were worshiping inside, and entered church services to kill people right and left. But that's a continent away, right? Well, as we all know, last Sunday, one week ago today, in Sutherland Springs, Texas, are we going to go home and hear something else on the news this afternoon? In Sutherland Springs, Texas, a deranged shooter entered the First Baptist Church, killed 26 people, wounded more than 20 others, here at Sigma Mountain Bible Church, we, uh, I, I should tell you this, we, in case you ever wonder, we do take precautions. Uh, we do have precautions here for a couple of years now. All the doors are locked after the service begins, except for those two out there. And from, from now on, those two <laughs> will be locked. There'll be somebody floating there in case somebody needs to go out at the car and get something and come back in. The, so that uh, that will not be a problem. Those things happen, or somebody may come really late, and and uh, and those things do happen. But uh, the the shooter and t- and by the way, there are other precautions in place as well, uh, which I'd be happy to tell you about privately. Um, the the shooter in Texas, Devin Kelly, was a self proclaimed atheist, and and he said that Christians were stupid. From his worldview, there was no such thing as evil. But while philosophers may debate back and forth whether or not evil and sin exist, really no one in their hearts, in what they know deep down, doubts that. It is real. What happened in the mind of Devin Kelly was not just cranial biochemical reactions. It was sin. I mean, in, in other news, there's, we've seen a serial unfolding of sexual ac- accusations against Hollywood power broker Harvey Weinstein. 
against producers, against directors, against other actors. But look, you've got a, you've got a mix of power, money, sex, and a worldview in which there is no accountability. Good grief. What do we expect would happen? It's, again, called sin. This is what we see in the world around us. And honestly, what we see when we look in the mirror is the specific outworking of what we have been studying throughout the book of Romans, specifically in Romans 1 to 3. What we see in the news is what the Bible calls the flesh. I'm going to read a few passages because we're in re-entry now in our studies in Romans. And I want you to follow along because I want to rebuild our context for just a couple of moments. So turn in your, in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm going to read some selected verses. Chapter 1, verses 19 and following. I'm jumping into the middle of a context, but I'm going to try to rebuild the foundation upon which what we're going to be saying today rests. Romans 1.19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. There are some things, friends, that we can't not know. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that, you, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Okay, look up here. What's he been saying so far? Well, in chapter 1, he's talking about those who say there is no God. There is no accountability. I'm the one who's on the throne of the universe. And Paul says, no, no, they are without excuse because there are certain things that you can't not know. In chapter 2, he's talking about those who say, yeah, Paul, those guys, those atheists, those agnostics, those pagans are so guilty before you. They are sinners. And Paul says, no, no, you join their ranks because you practice the same things. You may label it differently. You may practice it to a different level of depth and intensity. But we are all sinners. And in chapter 3, he develops that, chapter 2 and chapter 3, that even the most religious of all, the Jews, are guilty before God. What then? Are we better than they? No, that we have already charged it. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Romans 3, uh, verse 10. Verse 9, rather. And look at Romans 3, 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. He's quoting the Old Testament here because this is a consistent story throughout the Bible. We are sinners. There is a gap between us and God called sin. We can't bridge that gap. God is the one who took the initiative, who became flesh and bridged the gap for us and died for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins. On the cross. That is what we celebrate this morning in communion. When his body and his blood, his body went to the cross, his blood was shed, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is God's eternal plan. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. You're in chapter 3, look at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, which means being declared righteous before God, being saved as a gift, which means we didn't earn it. It's not wages. The wages of sin is death. This is freely given to us as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just. And the justifier. He is the one who satisfies holiness and justice. He is the justifier. He's the one who satisfies love of the one who has faith in Jesus. And where then is boasting? It is excluded. Nobody can boast in this. We boast in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So how should we live? Look at chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? I mean, if God has saved us by his grace, do we quantify grace units? So so much sin is covered by so much grace. And if we sin all the more, would grace increase? Because that sounds like a good deal. Shall we sin all the more that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We are in a new position. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. But here's the deal. I still have the flesh. Sin. Dwelling in me. It's still a part of my makeup. And Sometimes that reaches the point. Look at chapter seven. Look at chapter seven, verse 19, where this is my experience for the good that I want. I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Look at verse 24. And, and eventually I reach the point where I cry out. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? But. Thank God it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but with the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. How did I get out of this dilemma? <laughs> Does this mean I'm not saved? No. Chapter eight, verse one. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And this chapter gives us the roadmap. For spiritual growth, it begins with the work of the son. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no sin that you have ever committed in the past that you are committing in the present or that you will commit in the future for which Christ did not die. For which the penalty was not paid. You're not going to surprise him with some new sin that will somehow remove you from his grace. And Romans 8 proceeds after the work of the Son, proceeds with the work of the Spirit in sanctification, which means to become more like Jesus. 
to grow spiritually. I told you this weeks ago that this can and that the, the work of the spirit can even be quantified here because the word spirit occurs only four times in Romans from chapters one to chapter seven, just four times. But in chapter eight, it occurs over 20 times in that chapter alone, more than any other chapter in all of the New Testament is the work of the Holy Spirit laid out right here. And by contrast, the pronoun I, which is over 30 times in chapter seven, is almost absent from chapter eight. It's this is the work of the spirit. So chapter eight begins with the work of the son. No condemnation. It continues with the work of the spirit and it ends with the eternal protection of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no condemnation to no separation. And if you get what I've just said, it's the work of the Father, it's the work of the Son, Spirit, it's the, it's, it's the work of the Son. All of this is all of God. And, and that's where we left our studies last time. All of this is all of God. Now, wait, Gary, wait, 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 wait. I know that I don't have it in me to earn my salvation. I know that. But you're saying I don't have it in me to live the Christian life? Yes. That is what Romans 8 is saying. Exactly. All of this is all of God. Romans 8 develops the point. Because of the work of the Spirit, we have newness in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So what, Romans 8 details some of these new things. And we're not going to get through all the points that are on your outline this week. So this is to be continued. But first of all, through the Holy Spirit's work, and we're picking back up where we left off before in chapters in verses 12 and 13, Romans 8, 12 and 13. First of all, we have a new enablement. And we've already studied these verses. So I'll be summarizing a little bit verse here, a little bit here. Look at verses 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So verse what this is saying is if you are in Christ. Now, get this. The law has set you free from the law. Oh, good to know, Gary. Thank you so much. OK, look back at verse two. Look back at verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what's being picked up here on verses in verses 12 and 13. There are two different kinds of law here. One has power over the other. And, and, and before. I gave this simple analogy that I'd heard elsewhere. And the analogy is the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. When you're flying in a plane, there is a sense in which the law of aerodynamics sets you free from the law of gravity. As long as you abide in that which sets you free, you're not subject to the law of gravity in the same way. But if you step out of that airplane, you're going to fall. It's poss is it possible for a true believer to become ensnared in a pattern of addictive sin? 
Yes. But in time, a true believer will come to the end of themselves and cry out with Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will set me free and then turn to the Lord? I I believe we all do find ourselves there at times in different degrees, perhaps. But we're all there. If you feel that internal struggle of sin, and you know what? You may feel the internal struggle of sin to a degree that you never felt before you were a Christian. Because before it didn't bother you. Not nearly as much. And before you didn't have the Holy Spirit. But now you do. And now you feel the tension at a level that you've never felt it before. So if you are feeling that tension, that struggle between the two, in one sense, that's good news. Because it tells you several important things. It tells you that, number one, you're spiritually alive. Number two, you have not become spiritually stagnant. And you don't want to become spiritually stagnant. You're not wallowing in the pig pen with a prodigal son. And number three, you are in process. Your task now, as Hebrews 6.1 tells us, is let us press on to maturity. But the contrast That we see in verses 12 and 13, and I'm back in this text, I'm anchored in this text pretty deeply today. The contrast that we see in these verses is not with the believer that we see struggling in chapter 7. The contrast here is between the believer who is pressing on to maturity and the unbeliever who is not at all interested in repentance, forgiveness, fellowship, or any kind of spiritual growth or change who has himself on his throne. This person doesn't begin to think wretched man that I am. This person thinks I'm in charge of my life. I'm the master by faith. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm going to do whatever's true for me. For this person, the verb in verse 13 is intensive. It says you must die. Not you're going to die. You must die. Spiritual death forever. Physical death hangs over everyone in this room. But if you're not saved, both physical death and eternal death await you. And I want you to notice the clashing verbs here. If you live, you'll die. But if you die, you'll live. Huh? It means if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you die by putting the flesh, putting the flesh to death... You will live. And the verb putting to death is a present progressive verb. And it means you keep putting to death. It's kind of a strange thing. How do you grow as a Christian? Well, you keep on killing. But you keep on killing the flesh. So, oh, there was an old word for it, mortification. It's a good word. We just don't use it much anymore. But that, what this is talking about is the ongoing process of walking with the Lord. And we're going to be talking about this more and more as we in the coming weeks. There is no third alternative in these verses. There is no spiritual Switzerland. There's no spiritual neutral ground. There's no peaceful coexistence with the flesh. There is no truce with the flesh. Period. Jesus said it long ago in Matthew six twenty four: No man can serve two masters. Here's the deal. Whichever one we choose to live for, we will try to suppress or kill the other one. No man can serve two masters. From Romans 7, 
the chapter before that describes a struggle. Here, if, if you're not growing as a believer, you'll, but you're enticed by the pleasures and, and allure of this world, for now, if you're in that midst of that struggle, there are times when, frankly, we want those pleasures more than we want holiness. But if you're a true believer, you know what? Your life's going to be miserable. Wretched man that I am. Ugh, I can't believe I'm doing this. God, I need help. James 1, I love the description in James. You've heard me mention it to you before. The double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded. Got, you've got so much of the Lord in you that you can't enjoy the world. And you've got so much of the world in you that you're letting in that you're not enjoying the Lord. You're miserable. You're unstable. And, uh, and then James picks up on the same word uh, later on in James. That's James 1.8. In James 4.8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen to this. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. From <laughs> Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation. He doesn't say work for but it's within you. Work it out in flesh and incarnate it. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your own salvation. Not work for, but God is at work in you. This is this divine union of the Spirit's enablement that's laid out here in Romans 8 that's a part of our walk. From Romans 7, if you're not growing, you're miserable. But from Romans 8, if you want to grow and to walk by the Spirit... God's word is going to be your lifeline. And worship and fellowship with other believers will be indispensable. And the more you think about what it really means to you, it's not going to be getting up to church to worship corporately. Oh, no, you know, I really should. I don't know. I've got a hangnail. It's, it's not going to be that kind of thing at all. It's going to be, okay, good. Another lifeline for me today. My fellowship. With my brothers and sisters, because as you look around this auditorium, as we grow together in the body of Christ, what you are seeing here is your band of brothers. What you're seeing here is your circle of sisters. It's the group that supports you in prayer, supports you, encouragement, loves you, prays for you. And you do for them. That, that's what we should be about. Here in the body of Christ. So, I mean, I was yesterday morning. I was yesterday morning for our men's breakfast. It was just a great time. Uh, David Hudson gave his testimony. It was wonderful. And we were all sitting there in the foyer around the tables. And I was looking around at that group and I was thinking, I could call any one of these guys in an emergency and they would be there for me like that. And they would be there for each other like that. So, the Spirit not only inhabits the individual, the Spirit inhabits the church. Do you not know that you, plural, are the body of Christ? The temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. He inhabits us individually and he inhabits us corporately. That's a part of the Spirit's activity of growing us to maturity through Romans chapter 8. So, 
Now, does that mean that you're always going to have smooth sailing because you've got this new enablement? No, it doesn't. But there is no third alternative. There's no neutral ground here. We have this new enablement of the Holy Spirit within us. And, and we'll be talking about that more. But I'm going to move on to verse, th- verse 14. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have a new identity. The Holy Spirit doesn't come into your life with new demands. He comes with a new identity. We become sons of God by faith in the Son of God. Right? John 1.12 As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe on his name. What do we owe to the flesh? Nothing. What do we owe to the Father? Everything. We have a Father to whom we owe our obedience. And our obedience is not to as, as a slave to a master, although honestly that, are, that is a part of it, and he talked about that in chapter 6. But it's also the obedience of a child to his or her father. The paradox is this. Becoming a slave to Christ makes you a son. And as a son, you're to be a bond slave to Jesus Christ. The prodigal son returned to the father with the intention of being a slave. But instead, before the father even called for new clothing, the father calls him my son, restores him to full sonship. So Romans 6 tells us don't reclothe yourselves with grave wrappings, you've been, you've been made alive, you've been set free from those grave wrappings of the flesh, but instead be led by the Spirit through His Word and live like a son, like live like who you are. Because the Father is telling you, you are now a person whose sins are forgiven, whose guilt is now erased, in whom the Holy Spirit now lives. Some of you do not believe that. I know that you're sitting here thinking God couldn't love me like that. Maybe you were never loved by a parent like that. Maybe you've never been loved unconditionally by anyone like that. But then if you don't affirm what God is saying here, then God is a liar and he is not a liar. This is how he loves you. I love you. I have erased your guilt. I have forgiven your sins. I have inhabited you by the spirit You're mine. I love you. I will never abandon you, which is what the last of the chapter is about. So a third point, verse 15, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have a new motivation. Notice how verse 15 describes our old life. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So our old life is described as a spirit of slavery, picking up from Romans 6. But Romans 6 tells us that we have been set free from slavery to sin in order to become slaves of Christ. And that is a different kind of servitude altogether. The paradox is that uh, that slavery to sin leads to death. Slavery to Christ leads to freedom. Leads to life. Doesn't lead to greater bondage. It leads to joy. Our new servitude to this amazing master. That's the place where our greatest freedom. Is found as sons. We are created. To serve him. And to glorify him. 
I've used this illustration years ago, I guess, but sometimes people remember illustrations. Let's say that you were going to fly to Los Angeles. And you're going to get on a plane in L.A., in Atlanta, rather, and fly to L.A. And you get on the plane, and the plane can talk. And the plane says to itself, you know, I don't like flying. I think I'm going to taxi to Los Angeles. First of all, I'm going to get out of the airport area, and then I'm going to go up Highway 75 up to Chattanooga, and then I'm going to turn left and go across 24, never much traffic there. And I'm going to end up in Los Angeles. Now, in a strangely weird conceivable world, would that be possible? Uh, Probably not, but maybe. Let's just say hypothetically it is. I would suggest to you that while an airplane could taxi from point A to point B, it is the most free when it is doing that for which it was made. And that is soaring. And we are the most free when we are slaves to Jesus Christ and we experience our full sonship in Christ. Paul calls himself 13 times out of his 13 epistles, bond slave of Jesus Christ. But I tell you, nobody ever felt freer than he did. And his freedom was in the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Our old life was motivated by fear. And everybody in fear, I'm sorry, everybody in Rome understood what fear was like in a master-slave relationship. It was a performance-based relationship. People fear many things. Um, Most, probably the greatest fear that people have is the fear of death. Woody Allen said, life is full of misery, loneliness, and suffering. And it's over all too much soon. I remember years ago, and I I don't even, it's odd to mention this to you, because I don't remember who the people were. But I was watching a talk show at night, and it was sort of a a well-known thinker who was being interviewed by Dick Cavett or someone like that. And uh, they were they were making funny with all kinds of jokes and hilarity and and everything was funny and interesting and engaging. And until the question was asked, uh, what fears do you have? And they were expecting some sort of a flippant, funny answer. And all of a sudden, everything got quiet and sober. As the man said, I am afraid of death. The audience, the studio. You could hear a pin drop. And then the host went straight to commercial. Everybody lives in fear. But the Christian can say, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because of the freedom, that, that's part of the freedom that we have in Christ. What does a new motivation look like practically? Well, this passage makes it clear that it's not always what we do, it's how and why we do it. You can, you can wash dishes, you can paint houses, you can be a lawyer, you can be a preacher, you can be a doctor, uh, you, you can be whatever, a, a teacher, to the glory of God and produce eternal value. Or, 
You can wash dish, dishes in order to get your next fix. Or you can be a lawyer to advance in a firm while stabbing others in the back. Or you can be a preacher in order to manipulate numbers for bragging rights. Uh, and manipulate a congregation with emotional stories. Scripture is clear. You can do something which looks spiritual, but is for the flesh. Listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. I tell you truly, they have their reward in full. What does he mean? Well, they wanted to be seen by men. They got seen by men. Big deal. What was the activity? Praying. And then he goes on to give the same point about giving alms. And about fasting. Spiritual activities. When you do those things. You can, you can do them for the flesh. You can do what looks spiritual for the flesh. Remember the Roman preachers in Philippians 1.15. Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. James 4.3. You ask and do not receive. What does he mean you ask? What is he talking about there? He's talking about praying. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend it on your pleasures. What is the activity being described? Prayer, but for the wrong motives. Our motivation is to serve Jesus Christ and to glorify him. Am I well pleased? Doesn't matter. Is Christ well pleased is the key. Am I glorified and made to look good? Doesn't matter. Is Christ glorified and shown to be who he is? That's the key. Next, we have a, a new motivation that is anchored in a new relationship. Look at verse 15. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons. Now, I want you to notice the contrast. Spirit of slavery leading again to fear versus spirit of adoption. True slavery operates on that fear performance-based relationship. Your performance determines the relationship. You're a good slave, you don't get punished. So while slavery operates on the fear principle, the spirit of adoption operates on a love principle. If you're in Christ, there's a new relationship. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We've already mentioned this, that in Christ we're children of God. But that relationship brings with it not only a new standing, it also brings a new level of intimacy. Described here with a prayer cry, Abba, Father. And I, I said prayer cry because the verse says we cry out. And that, and that verb means to yell. It means to exclaim. It's the prayer cry of someone who's in distress. Abba, help! That's what it means. It's not the same Greek word for father that we see in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. This is a more intimate word. The word Abba is actually an Aramaic word, which is the common form of Hebrew spoken in the first century derivative of Hebrew. It's the Aramaic word for Abba. Here's the audience, audience participation uh, part. Uh, there are different forms of speech that come out of your mouth. We form words in different ways. Among the three major ways to form things are labials, gutturals, and dentals. Uh, when, I, when I use a, a D sound, I put my tongue to the back of my teeth. It's a dental. Okay, 
say the word daddy. Daddy. Did you see? Did your tongue go to the back of your... Okay, did you see that? That's a dental. Okay, that's hard for a baby to do. How about a guttural? That's where you, you choke the, the word back in your mouth, back in your throat. A guttural. Uh, say Gary. G- g- yeah, right. Okay. There's labial, uh, there's dentals. and You know what the simplest one is where you have a breath of air and you just explode it out of your lips. Mama. Abba. Abba. Easiest child, easiest cry for a baby, for a child, for someone who wants to be in the arms of their loving father, held, protected, nurtured, loved, Abba. This, this, this is this Aramaic word means more than just legal sonship. It's a relationship word. It's the word of someone who is intimate and close to me. Here's the deal. This word, Abba, indicates a total lack of fear of rejection. Total lack of fear of rejection. When you cry out, Abba, Father. That's a cry of someone who knows to whom he belongs. One Old Testament scholar or New Testament scholar said this one word, Abba, if it is understood in its full sense, comprehends the whole message of the New Testament. It occurs only three times in the New Testament. And we're going to look at the other two. Here's the here's the first one. The other two. Well, you know what? We're going to look at one. (laughs) And the other passage is Galatians four. I think I put it in your notes. And it's very much the same as Romans. Somebody once said that Galatians is Romans written when Paul was mad. So you have the same meaning of it there. You have exactly the same themes. But here's the deal. The Jews never called God Father. They never did. When Jesus called God Father... And he taught his disciples to pray, our father, which art in heaven. That was scandalized. They were scandalized because they wouldn't dream of taking on themselves, even though God presents himself as a father in scripture. They wouldn't dream of taking on themselves that level of intimacy with the holy, the other, the unintimate God. You know, they they wouldn't take that on themselves. But Jesus said, no, no, he's father, he's father. And, and he taught his disciples to pray, our father. And he taught them to call him father. But Jesus, I mean, that was scandalous to the Jews. First time in history that the Jews, any Jew ever, any Jew ever called God fathers in the New Testament. Um, although Jesus separated his sonship from ours. Remember when he said, I go to my father and to your father? Because we're not his the, the children of God in the same way. So here he takes the word of intimacy and he adds this. And he says, you've got this distress cry. And why do I 
call it a distress cry. It's because of the only other place it's used in the New Testament. It's in Mark 14, 35 and 36. Just listen. Jesus went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a cry of distress. What drove a wedge that he that Jesus was anticipating a wedge driven between him and his father, Abba? What, what was that wedge that he did not want? That he was anticipating it was the cry on the cross when he who knew no sin sucked into himself the entire composite of human misery and became sin for us. And at that moment, saturated with scripture, he uttered the cry of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what was the wedge between the father and Jesus, the son? Sin, our sin imputed to him. What is the wedge between our heavenly father and us? What's the wedge? It's sin that we allow to separate us from from God. When we get in, when we are engaged in sin in our lives. What is your prayer cry? What is mine? It should be Abba, Father, when you are engaged in sin and you just. You're struggling with it. Don't run away from him. That's Satan's plan. He wants you to run to him. Abba. Father. He wants you to be caught up in his arms. As long as you are running to him, you will grow spiritually. Hebrews 4 says this, therefore. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you have weaknesses? I got time. You have weaknesses? Okay, I sure do. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The prayer cry, Abba, does not focus on me as God's son, but on him. The prayer cry, Abba, is not I am God's son, but rather God is my father. Man-centered sanctification is all about me and how I am growing and my maturity and how I feel about how I'm doing as I'm progressing. Man-centered sanctification is not sanctification. God-centered sanctification is about His glory and His majesty being conformed to His image. And when we fall, we run to Him. Abba, Father. This is doctrine for hurting people. This is sanctification for wounded believers. 
This is sanctification for life in a fallen world where there is a lot of groaning. Look in verse 22, the creation groans. Verse 23, we ourselves groan. Verse 26, the Holy Spirit groans. That's ahead. Can you tell there's more to come? Adoption is where God says to us, with all the pain in this life, rest on this. You're mine. You're mine. And Abba is perhaps where we say to God, reverently, you're mine. But we can't utter that joyous cry with any sense of authority or any sense of merit having deserved it. What we're saying is all of this is all of God. And we sing the song. I am his and he is mine. That's what this is about. We're going to in a few moments close with that song. But I can't think of any more clear example, more compelling graphic picture of I am his and he is mine than communion. Where we take of him into us, his body. His blood. And we remember him until he comes. I'm going to ask you to take a moment, bow in prayer and reflect upon this. I'm going to ask the men who will be serving to come forward. And as you pray, let's come to this table with clean hands. Is there anything between you and God that you need to settle?